I was a uh, freshman at Houghton College. It was a Tuesday, and I'd just come back from our 8 a.m. class, and you could hear a pin drop in the common area of our dormitory. Every resident on the hall was crowded around our big TV in that common room, and they were watching the grisly footage over and over on repeat of a plane crashing into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Just like, hit me again. Much, much more was about to follow. Little did we know that the tragedy had just begun. I would be willing to wager that most of us who are old enough to remember 9-11 remember exactly where we were on September 11th, uh, 2001, excuse me, when we received the news. Show of hands, how many of you remember that moment just burned into your minds and hearts? Yeah. Tragedies have a way of doing that, don't they? of just searing themselves into our memory banks as if from that moment onward they are forever etched into the slate of our lives. Some of you have your own personal stories of tragedy. Try as you may, you can't shake it. It'll always be there somewhere under the surface. If you're fortunate enough not to have tasted the bitterness of life's tragedy and gall, friend, I don't say this to relish it, but I say this in truth, just buckle up and wait. It's just a matter of time. For as Scripture says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Remember the words of our Savior and our King. They really do help us, I'm convinced, to manage our expectations accordingly in life. Christ said, in this world you will have trouble. The word trouble can also be interpreted tribulation, but take heart, Christ continues, I have overcome the world. Hallelujah. Well, today we're going to see how Jesus responds when confronted with tragedy. And his answer might surprise us. As usual, Jesus has a way of addressing the issue behind the issue. So let's check it out, if you would. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 13. We've made it to 13. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If you're using our church Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find that on page 819. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And we'll start by just going to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help one more time. Uh, as we need the Spirit to enlighten us to the truth of God's Word. Father, we bow our heads and hearts now in desperation uh, for your revelation to us. We thank you, Father, for the gift that you've given us of your inerrant, infallible Word. Uh, Lord, heaven and earth will pass away, but we know that your words will never pass away. And, and, and here we sit, here, here we have gathered to consider the words of Jesus, your Son, the Christ, the living one. And we pray, Lord, that we would tremble at the truth and the depth and the eternality of Jesus' words here this morning. Lord, would you open our eyes to behold your glory. 
Lord, in, in ways where we need to repent, in ways where we need to, to turn aside, to shake off the sloth of, of mediocrity as it relates to, to, to Christ and our relationship with Him. God, we pray that You'd grant us that grace. Guard us from error and guide us in your truth, we pray once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure and Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. These are the words of our Lord. All right, well, we see here in this passage, the beginning of Luke chapter 13, Jesus addressing not one, but two tragedies, and note that his answer to both is the same, like verbatim. And, and then, immediately upon pronouncing his divine truth over these catastrophic events, Jesus follows up his instruction with a parable. He, as we like to say around here, throws a parable alongside these heavenly truths that he's teaching for those who have ears to hear. So I've entitled this one, Blood, Guts, and No Figs. I don't know, it just kind of seemed appropriate given the content today. Uh, So let's dive in. We'll start with tragedy number one. Look at verse one with me, if you would, again. There are a group of Galileans, or there were a group of Galileans, going to sacrifice, probably at the Passover feast. And Pilate, you heard him? Pilate slaughters them in the act of their worship. In fact... This is such a gruesome, bloody affair that the blood of these individuals ends up mingled with the blood of the sacrifices that they've come to offer before the Lord. Now, we don't know much more about this incident. We we hear nothing more about it in Scripture. We read nothing about it from antiquity. This is all we get here in Luke chapter 13. But we do know that we're talking about a national tragedy. To the Jews, this is more than just blood and guts and gore. This is an outrage. They were worshiping. And Pilate, this Roman governor, this foreign overlord, kills them in the act of worship before God Most High, which is 
why they're asking him about this, by the way. Do you know that in the midst of Jesus' teaching and ministry, uh, we, we, we read at the beginning of chapter 13, they, they, they were at that moment telling him about this tragedy so as from Jesus to elicit a response. All right, Jesus, you're teaching with unparalleled power and authority. You're teaching us the truths from on high for us to understand life and the kingdom of God and how it operates. What do we do with this? Jesus, by the way, this terrible tragedy tells you something about the ruthless nature, excuse me, of Pilate, doesn't it? We'll see this in effect later as well. His reputation certainly had preceded him. So, How's Jesus respond? That's the question. They, they lob this, this heavy question. They, they, they lay this incident at his feet. And um, at least my response to Jesus' response is, huh, he doesn't expect... He doesn't respond like we would necessarily expect him to. He does not, perhaps like those bringing the question, respond with shock or indignation. And it's not to say that Jesus lacks compassion, quite the contrary. Jesus is eternally compassionate. That's why, rather than fixating on this temporal tragedy, as terrible as it is, on the earthly dimension of this human suffering, he uses these events to point to a much bigger, eternally binding reality that's unfolding before them. So he poses this question. He says, this is a Jewish thing and something Jesus did quite often. He responds to a question with a question. He says this, Do you think this happened because they were worse sinners than the rest of those Galileans? Answer, no. It's quite clear here. His answer is no. And, and without breaking stride, Jesus continues. But now he makes it personal. Look at this. He says, Unless you repent. We're not talking about those dead Galileans anymore. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will all likewise perish. Yeesh. So, so now Jesus is no longer talking about this bloody incident with those Galileans killed at the temple with their sacrifices. He's talking about a kind of universal perishing. Unless you will repent, you will, what's the next word? All. Likewise, perish. Friends, Jesus makes no bones about this. This perishing that he's addressing will be the fate of all mankind unless a certain thing, namely repentance, has taken place. Now, we got some work to do with this to, to unpack all that that means. But before we do, I think I'd like us just to keep moving and tackle tragedy number two because although these tragedies are very different, qualitatively different kinds of calamities and pain, Jesus' answer to them both is identical, isn't it? So it's as if Jesus means us to take away the same lesson from both these jarring incidents. So let's check it out. Tragedy number two, verse four. Now, they brought the first incident incident, excuse me, to Jesus. We don't know if he had already known about it or if he was hearing this news for the first time, but, uh, but the second tragedy Jesus brings up, Jesus said, oh yeah, well, how about this one? 
Verse 4, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. This is not the same kind of calamity, is it? This is not a malicious act of violence perpetrated by one like Pilate. This is, if you will, a terrible accident. Jesus asked the same question. Do you think that these folks were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. And then it gets personal again. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Hmm. Well, in, in order for us to understand Jesus' brief but powerful assessment of these unfortunate events, we've got to grapple, I think, with two very important words. These are Bible words. They're words that Jesus uses right here in Luke chapter 13. He provides these words in his response, and they are, first, repent, and second, perish. We've got to Make sure we understand what these big Bible words mean if we're going to understand Jesus' assessment of these tragedies and what we should do about them. So let's take the first one, repent. That word in uh, the Greek language that this uh, New Testament is recorded in is the word metanoio. Metanoio. It, It means to repent or to literally change one's mind. That's what repentance is, biblically. It's what the word means, to change one's mind. But it's not just to change one's mind. It doesn't stop there. It it steamrolls from the mind to, to the body to the actions. Repentance, biblically speaking, is sort of like an about face. It requires a change of direction. So um, I was thinking about ways to, to illustrate biblical repentance, uh, and, uh, and so we had an idea, and Benjamin put the word out to some of our, uh, our younger gentlemen who are car enthusiasts, and thank you, Daniel, for, uh, for sending this one along. Let's, let's check it out. A visual illustration. After church. This is biblical repentance. It's a picture of spiritually what's happening in our hearts and our lives. Biblical repentance, friends, is more than merely, I'm sorry, God. Biblical repentance requires a change, a change of mind, a change of direction, an about face. It's like uh, the, uh, the spiritual leader Kent Hughes puts it, repentance is a change of mind that brings with it a change of action. Now, there's a group of people in this room, I am sure, who are poised and waiting for me to talk about as we broach the topic of repentance, things like how regeneration precedes repentance. And then no one can truly repent and come to saving faith unless the Father first draws him or her. How repentance is a miracle birthed and graced from God, not by ourselves. That's all really good stuff. 
Stuff that I believe, stuff that Scripture truly, uh, uh, truly teaches elsewhere in the canon of its pages. But I want you to understand here, as we're looking at this passage, those things, this full-orbed theology, this doctrine of repentance, is not what Jesus chooses to focus on here. And I just have a simple conviction that our goal should not be to exhaustively expound on every corner of the doctrine of repentance, like turning it over like a diamond. Our goal should simply just be to repeat Jesus' words and make sure we understand them and can do something about them here this morning. What Jesus responds to today about repentance is not the when of repentance, as in when or how it happens. Jesus is concerned with the universality of, of repentance, as in the need for everyone, for all, to repent. It's just like Bill read earlier as we were singing. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's only one outcome for those who do not repent of their sin and turn to Christ. This is not hard to understand, is it? Jesus' words are very concrete, very plain. Those who do not repent have one destination eternally. And it's the second word we need to make sure we understand here in this passage. If we're going to understand Jesus' big picture principle here, it's the word perish. Jesus, when he's talking about perishing here and elsewhere, is not merely talking about physical death. Certainly it includes that, but the kind of perishing that he's talking about here in this passage in Luke 13 is broader. It's more all-encompassing. I love how the Reformed Expository Commentary, I know, I, I, I read that one a lot. I love how it puts it. I think this is helpful. It says, by perish... Jesus does not mean that we will lose our lives in some terrible accident, but that we will suffer the eternal wrath of God. We know this, by the way, from the context of our passage here. Jesus is telling the crowd that all, you caught that word, right? Both times, all, everyone is going to fall into this perishing category who don't repent. So Jesus is clearly saying that all, he's not saying rather, that all are going to get crushed by the same tower that has already toppled over. He's not saying that the all who have already got crushed by the tower are also going to get mercilessly sacrificed by Pilate. There's only a limited number of times you can die, right? So what's Jesus mean? Well... Go over this often. The best interpreter of Scripture is what? It's Scripture. You come to a place in Scripture where you're, you're, you're lacking clarity and you're wanting to understand things in, in, a, in a more full way. The, the most sure, eternal, safe, true way to understand what Scripture means is to see if that principle is elucidated anywhere else in the pages of Scripture so that we can better understand what's going on here. So, is there anywhere in Scripture, we should ask, where these two concepts of repenting and perishing are both used side by side so that we can better understand their meaning? Why, yes, of course. I'm glad you asked. 
Let's take a look now at another passage where we see Jesus, you know, the same Lord and Savior, using these same two words, repent and perish. And I think this is going to help us very clearly understand where he's leading us. Matthew 10, verse 28. I think we got the reference down for, for those of you who may want to look this up later or dig a little bit deeper. Matthew 10, 28. I'll just read it here. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, what's Jesus preaching? What's he saying? Repent. Ding, 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 ding. There's one. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, which is... The same word in Greek, destroy, as our word perish, here in Luke 13. Don't fear those who can kill the body only, but, but fear the one who can bring real destruction, real perishing of both soul and body in hell. This, friends, is precisely what Jesus means by perish. When he that, uses that word, he means the eternal destruction of body and soul in hell. An eternal hell of conscious torment. So, now might be an appropriate time to pull up for air and say, Happy New Year. In a time where many of us, as we crest the calendar year afresh, are thinking about goals and resolutions... I think this is the dose of perspective that we really need to keep before us. The reminder, the, the, the stark but gracious reminder from our King, Jesus, that death is the common denominator, the common destination for everyone. And only by repenting can we avoid the perishing that is the end of all mankind. Only by repenting. This is the glorious gospel truth that Bill started us off again as we were singing of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin, you know this one, what you earn by your sin, its wages is what? Is death. It's the same kind of perishing, eternal death we've been talking about. But... The free gift of God. It's free. It's not something you earn or you, you conjure up. It's given to you. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we're here. And this gift of repentance, this free gift of God, earned by Jesus alone, is a gracious gift that God delights to give. Luke 5, or excuse me, Luke 15, verse 10. Jesus again, he's speaking and he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The question, friends, is not why do terrible things happen to people? 
It's a, it's a big question. It's a question we all wrestle with. It's part of the human experience. But that's not the question that the Bible seeks to answer. Why do terrible things happen to people? The answer, by the way, is sin. Why did those worshiping Galileans get mercilessly slaughtered? Why did the Tower of Siloam fall on those 18? Why did my mom fill in the blank? Why is my cancer still ravaging my body? Why is my relationship with this family member so fractured? I'm trying so hard. The answer is not, why do terrible things happen to people? The real question is, why have I not already perished under the righteous judgment of a holy God? The question is, why is it that I am still here? Why has God extended such grace and patience to me? That I should not, like so many, countless before me, have perished eternally. Now, we should stop, I think, at this point, before we continue tracking through the text, and just ask the important application question. Ask, okay, well, what do we do with these gospel truths right from the mouth of our Savior? Well, I think we've got to stop here and lay down a critically important spiritual principle. This is huge, guys. And this is one of the things Jesus is clearly teaching us, which is this, that tragedy is not necessarily a direct result from someone's particular sin. It's so important. I'm going to say it again. Your, your tragedy in life, any tragedy in life, is not necessarily a direct result of someone's particular sin. In, order, in other words, there is not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence between an individual's sin and that person's suffering. We should also remember Jesus' words to his disciples when they asked that question. You remember their question in John chapter 9? As they walked by a man who was born blind and, and destitute, and they asked Jesus in, in John 9, Hey Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Remember Jesus' answer? Wrong. You're all wet, Jesus said. You can read about it in John 9. He didn't say it exactly that way. He, He said, it was for the glory of God. That was the purpose, that God's glorious works might be revealed and displayed through his life. It had nothing to do with an individual's particular finite sin in that case i mean for crying out loud friends isn't that the whole point of the book of job like for chapter and chapter and chapter throughout the book of job they're arguing man job you blew it he's like no not that he was sinless but it was not we learn that job had done something to deserve or earn his suffering. That's not the way it always works. Now, here's the nuance. And sometimes, we just, as church folk, don't always think very deeply or carefully about this stuff. So sometimes, we encounter a, a truth like this from Jesus. Were these Galileans worse than all the rest of them that they should die this terrible, horrible death? 
No. Were these Judeans worse than all the rest of this tower should fall on them and crush them to death? No. Was this blind man worse than everybody else that he should be born that way? No. Was Job what you get the picture? So because we see this truth so clearly illustrated in Scripture that your sin and your suffering don't always have a direct line linking them together, sometimes we overcorrect. We do. Sometimes we overcorrect on this spiritual truth. And, and some people on the basis of these verses and these examples will go so far as to say that a tragedy... That a malady is never, will never be traced to a person's personal sin. And friends, that's not true either, is it? It's just simply not true. After all, the Bible is filled, I'm talking filled, with examples of God meeting out judgment on people for their specific sins. King Uzziah struck with leprosy for his sin in 2 Chronicles 26. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? You know, the, the guy on top of the world, king of Babylon, struck with madness because of his pride in Daniel chapter 4. How about the entire cities and the surrounding region of Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed because of their repugnant sin? When God rains down fire and sulfur on them from heaven in Genesis 19. Well, you say, you know, Zeb, that was just the angry Old Testament God. Right. The God who doesn't change yesterday, today, or for, forever. That God. Well, okay, let's just flip to the New Testament real quick. How about King Agrippa I? You know, the one who got struck with worms and was eaten alive by them when he failed to give God the glory in Acts chapter 12? How about Ananias and Sapphira who were struck dead when they lied to the Holy Spirit about their showy giving in Acts chapter 5? How about Jesus' own warning to the guy he had just healed in John chapter 5 Verse 14, Jesus' words. I'm just going to read you Jesus' words. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. So apparently there's a scenario in which that guy's sin could be linked to something worse that happens to him. Friends, the Bible is so clear there can be tragic results from the specific sins in our lives. Many of us know all too well, either in our own lives or in the lives of our loved ones, the pain that results from addiction or gluttony or promiscuous behavior or any number of other sins that we, could, we can mention. We've felt this, haven't we? So don't overcorrect. The Bible is true when it says we reap what we sow. But before we rush on to close out this passage, I'm just going to give you one more example. One more example that is particularly relevant, I think, for us today as we prepare our hearts to observe communion. So we participate in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Do you know 
that Scripture teaches, not Friendship Community Church, not Zeb Thomas, that Scripture teaches that there were some people, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 11.30, I'll just give you the verse here, if you want to go look it up on your own. There are some people, the Apostle Paul writes about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who were sick, and some had even died. Because why? Because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. Oh. So the sin of abusing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper resulted directly in sickness and death for some. Now, we're going to have to talk more about that before we break out the bread and the cup, right? <laughs> what do we make of all this? Well, here's, here's, I think, the simple application that we can walk out the door today with as a result of this truth that we can't overemphasize on one side of the road or the other. Here's the application. Ready? Don't be too big for your spiritual britches. That's the application. Friend, it is a dangerous thing to presume to speak for God when you have not heard from Him. So, what do you mean? Zeb? I'll tell you what I mean. Be very careful, very careful about saying, that car wreck... That cancer, that tragedy over there, that is God's judgment on fill-in-the-blank for their sin. Be very careful about that. We're really cavalier about this stuff. Here's the thing. We just looked at all kinds of examples. That might actually be true. It might. But Jesus, here in Luke 13, just taught us not to assume that just because there's sin, that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between your sin and your suffering. Sometimes that's it, and sometimes it's not. And don't outkick your spiritual coverage by labeling something as a prophet when God has not spoken to you. Be careful. Do not take the Lord's name nor his work in vain. Do not presume to speak when God has not spoken. All right, let's, let's keep moving here. We, gotta, we got more to get to here. We must have, as people of God, a measure of humility and trust that the sovereign God of heaven and earth knows what he's doing and he will work it all out in the end. All right, well, Jesus has just finished telling us that everyone who does not repent, who doesn't do an about face, who doesn't change their mind and change their direction and turn around from their sinful ways and follow him is going to perish. And immediately, get this, immediately after he finishes saying that, not once, but twice, he gives a parable. He gives a parable to illustrate what this true repentance really looks like. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're asking the question, 
Have I done that? Have I truly, biblically repented? Then this parable, I think, is going to be very helpful for you. Let's look at it together. Verses 6 to 9. We'll just, it's short. We're just going to read it again. Verses 6 to 9. And he told this parable. This parable is connected to the truth he's just been teaching. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So what happens to the tree? Jesus doesn't tell us. It's a parable. The point is not what happens to that tree. The point is, how does this parable connect to this truth that Jesus has just been sharing with us about repenting or perishing? What's this have to do with eternal life? Some of you who uh, may be, how should we say it, a bit more perceptive as listeners may have been thinking as we were working our way through this text, what in the world is a fig tree doing in the middle of a vineyard? Like for real. Well, if, just going to relieve the tension for you here. Then as now, vineyards would often contain other fruit trees in addition to grapes, to, to the vines of grapes. Why? kind of makes sense because you'd put the stuff that you want to produce bountifully where the best soil is. Doesn't that make sense? And in the Middle East, <laughs> that real estate is, uh, is pretty valuable. Isn't that, after all, the owner's assessment? Why should they cut the tree down? Why doesn't he just leave it? Why, why does it matter? He says, why should it use up the ground? This is good soil. This tree should be bearing fruit, and it's not. If it's not going to bear fruit, cut that thing down and put something there that will. Isn't that his point? Yeah. Note that the owner has every right to cut his tree down. Why should this tree live after all? Why does this tree get to live another year? Answer, because of the patience, because of the grace, because of the kindness and the forbearance of the owner and the worker who makes the appeal. Now, Let's not fail to connect the dots. We need to connect the dots between what Jesus has been saying about this fruitless fig tree and the point he's been driving home about repent or perish, repent or perish. Notice how Jesus takes the repentance concept one step further here with his parable to show us what true repentance looks like. What does true repentance look like? Well, true repentance looks like fruit. You get it? That's what true repentance looks like. True repentance, Jesus is teaching, looks like 
a tree, a vine, a branch that bears, produces fruit. The result, if we want to say it this way, or the byproduct of true repentance is the fruit of that repentance. Friends, if your life has been forever changed by turning from your sin, by turning from yourself, and by trusting in Christ on His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave, if He has taken you from death to life, if He has removed from your breast the the heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, something's going to be different. Agreed? You will bear fruit if you have truly repented. There will be a visible, demonstrable change in your life. It's just like John the Baptist so clearly and compellingly proclaimed in Matthew 3, 7-10. This is eerily similar to what Jesus is teaching here, by the way. John the Baptist also makes a connection between no fruit in repentance and cutting a tree down. It's like they're speaking from the same book. Listen to John the Baptist's words in Matthew 3. You brood of vipers, you can pull punches, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Listen now. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you hear it? Do you believe it? Every tree that does not bear good fruit, fruit which John says is in keeping with repentance, as in if you've truly repented, you will bear this fruit. Fruit or fire. Those are the only two options. Now, we've got to always be so careful when we talk about the fruit of saving faith. The fruit of saving faith does not produce saving faith. You can't get, please hear me, you cannot get to repentance by trying to bear good fruit for Jesus. It doesn't work that way. If you're saved, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone, and you had nothing to do with it. He did it on the cross when He paid for your sins and said, it is finished. You don't get to repentance by trying to conjure up fruit for God. But once you have repented, you hearing me? Once repentance has taken place, once the Lord has taken you from death to life, the byproduct of your true repentance and saving faith is a change of direction. It's good fruit. Do you see it? This is just the gospel. Do you see it? It's like the old hymn writer 
put it so well all those years ago. His name was Isaac Watts, by the way. I'm just trying to be like Benjo and quoting Isaac Watts. I love this line. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. His was the blood that was so violently shed to become the sacrifice. They ask him, Jesus, what about those Galileans whose blood got mixed with the sacrifice? Meanwhile, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem so that his blood would get mingled from his head, from his hands, from his feet for their sacrifice. Pastor Zeb, that sounds a whole lot like hellfire and brimstone to me. Yes. Are you paying attention to Jesus' words? Everyone who doesn't repent will perish. Call it what you want. It's the Bible. It's the words of the Savior. Repent or perish. And the reason Christ is standing there, the reason why they're lobbing these human temporal tragedies at them, and he's almost as if you will, waving them off and pointing them to a higher truth, to an eternal truth, is because he's giving, the Savior has come to die and rise again so that they don't have to. And he's here to give a firm but loving warning that he had come to taste death so they wouldn't have to. Someone sent me a text message today about, or, or this week rather, about something else entirely. But I, I've got this, this phrase from Scripture, from Romans, ringing in my head. Oh, the kindness and the severity of God. What do we do about Luke 13? Well, if you've got a pulse, there's no missing what to do about Luke 13. Jesus is clear. The clear application for everyone within the sound of His voice 2,000 years ago and through, through all humanity for all time and here at Friendship Community Church is this. Repent. Don't perish. You don't have to perish. Repent. Turn around. Trust in Jesus. Trust in His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. The wages of your sin always, only, ever yields death. And we're here singing and serving and giving and praying. We're here because Jesus is alive. And He calls us to repent. If you're here today and you want to do that, you don't need to jump through hoops. You don't need to repeat a prayer after me. You don't need to check a box. You don't need to walk an aisle. You need to say to Jesus, I believe. You need to trust in the work that He has already done on your behalf. You need to turn around like that race car and follow Him. That's repentance. 
That's eternal life. Now, if you're here today, and I know many of you are, I know many of your, your hearts and your desires and your professions of faith, if you're here today and you already have done that, praise God, you are in Christ. You have trusted in Him savingly and you're saying, yes, I own that truth. Yes, that's home base for me. Yes, Seb. Then here's something perhaps for you to passionately resolve to do in 2024. Friendship Community Church, let's have a passion for fruit bearing in 2024. A passion for fruitfulness. Would you join me in that prayer? Lord, make me fruitful. Lord, I I want to bear fruit that is in keeping with the repentance that my lips profess. Make me fruitful. Why is that such a big deal? Well, Jesus says in John 15, by this, my Father is glorified. Are you listening? What glorifies God? Well, Jesus glorifies God. We could take that in a lot of directions. But here's his answer. By this, my Father is glorified, that you would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You know, God is glorified when His people, the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ, rises up and turns around from her sin, from her wickedness, from her distraction, from her indolence, and pursues Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to bear fruit. May we be that kind of a church, FCC. A fruitful church in 2024. I think we should pray, and then we're going to turn our eyes and hearts to communion. Lord, would you do it? Would you help us, by your grace, by the power of your Spirit, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Lord, thank you for the sobering and saving words of Jesus. That although this world is racked by tribulation and trial and, and problems, that, that though we're grieved at, at tragedies as they unfold all around us, there's a bigger tragedy that we can't lose sight of, and that's living life without repentance. Lord, help us to turn. And for those of us who have, Lord, would you resolve us in 2024, here in January of this new year, to run hard, to bear much fruit for the glory of God. Lord, we want to glorify you, and we can't manufacture it on our own, so by the power of your Spirit, who's given us everything we need for life and godliness, help us to obey. Help us to serve. Help us to bear good fruit. We pray in Christ's mighty name. Amen.